Hi, everyone, and welcome to Primary Care Pearls, a podcast made by learners for learners and, most importantly, led by our patients' stories. Today, we're excited to talk even more about food. Well, I watched the movie first, Forks Over Knives. <laughs> the man was talking about chickens, and then I saw the other guy the, saying that milk had pus in it. And, you know, just nasty stuff. And it just, like, it makes you think, like, ugh, I don't want to eat that. Like, you're grossed. <laughs> like, nasty for eating it. During our discussion today, we'll be joined by Tina, a patient struggling with her nutrition. This is Tina. I do what I want. I eat what I want. I say what I want. I do what I want. And it all comes back to I eat what I want. We'll learn more about her experience with different eating patterns, including keto and the whole food plant-based diet. We'll also be joined by a resident expert from the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Justin Charles. I'm one of the residents in the Yale Primary Care Program. Really passionate, interested about nutrition and lifestyle medicine, and excited to talk to uh, Tina today about nutrition and her journey. This discussion will be part two of a four-part series that will explore eating habits, the psychological underpinnings of eating behavior, and strategies for the primary care provider to address them. My name's Nate Wood. I'm an internist, a chef, and a culinary medicine researcher, and it's truly my pleasure to be your host for this episode. Before we get started, please know that this content is meant to be for learning and entertainment purposes only and should not be used to serve as medical advice. If you or a loved one is suffering from anything discussed in today's episode, please be sure to discuss it with a medical expert. Let's get started. What kind of diets, quote unquote, have you tried before and what's been your experience with them? Um, I think the best thing, but I think you told me is it isn't healthy, is keto. I lost like 30 pounds in a month. I swear to God, the other day I saw a doctor in the hospital and she told me that her boyfriend lost 80 pounds in the last couple of months on keto <laughs> and she only does keto and I should do keto. And it's funny that you said it because I was like, oh, wow. Then I was thinking about, well, the fat. She said, people tell you fat is bad for you. Fat is the best thing for you. And this is a doctor telling me this. <laughs> so you think it's not good? Yeah. Well, I want to hear before I tell you my thing, what was your experience like with keto? I loved it because I lost the weight, but like I said, I had the headaches. It was this nasty, sweet taste I had constantly in my mouth. I couldn't get rid of it no matter how many times I brushed my teeth. Um, it was like a sweet, sickening taste. And then it was um, like the headaches, the irritability, the just, it, it just wasn't good. Mm -hmm. You don't feel good with it. I know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a good feeling, mm -hmm. but I did look good. Let's say that you had all of the self-control. What kind of eating pattern would, would you do? I would eat once a day, one big meal a day, a healthy meal, and then just drink water all day long till like, I wouldn't get hungry. <laughs> like, the food would be in there, and I would just keep drinking the water. The other thing you told me about... um the plant-based diet, that was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I start, there's a lot of stuff you could buy that's plant-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like those burgers and things like that. With keto, it's, it's good in the short term. Right. In the very short term, your blood sugar goes down, yeah. your weight goes down, your mm -hmm. blood pressure goes down. Right. But eating all of the animal fats and the mm -hmm. animal proteins worsens your heart disease. It yeah. worsens your insulin resistance. The reason I, I like talking about plant-based diets and, and whole food plant-based diets specifically without all the processed junk mm -hmm. is it helps with weight loss. 
and it helps with diabetes, and it helps with heart disease, and it helps with high blood pressure, and it helps with mood and energy. And there's not this trade-off between I'm going to lose weight, mm-hmm. but I'm going to feel terrible, my cholesterol is going to go up, and I'm going to end up having a heart attack. I just love being a fly on the wall for conversations like these as part of the podcast because it gives us an opportunity to learn so much, not only from the expert, but also from the patient. And I think that's really, really evident here from Tina's words. The first thing that we're honing in on is that a diet really can have a bunch of different purposes. For some patients, they're just hoping to lose weight. For some patients, they're hoping to increase their longevity or prevent or treat their chronic disease. For others, they're just trying to look good or feel good. So when we as providers get caught up in this discussion of what is the best diet, we have to stop and ask ourselves, the best diet for what? So for Tina, it seems like her primary goals were losing weight, looking good, and feeling good. So after incorporating some anecdotal evidence from someone she met in the hospital, she decided to give the keto diet a try. And as we heard, she just didn't feel good on the keto diet, despite achieving a couple of her other goals, like losing weight and liking how she looked. Justin does a nice job of jumping in to kind of clarify that some diets have some good evidence for some outcomes in the short term, while other diets have much more impressive data regarding long-term outcomes. Besides the whole food plant-based diet, which we're focusing on here with our resident expert, Dr. Justin Charles, Some other evidence-based diets for positive long-term health outcomes include the DASH diet and the Mediterranean diet, all of which focus on consuming primarily minimally processed plant foods. So as you can see, we as providers have a lot of information to collect and then juggle as we counsel patients on diet and nutrition. We need to take into account the patient's reasons for wanting to try a particular dietary pattern what specific goals the patient hopes to achieve with their diet, and our health goals for the patient as their provider, all in the context of the current state of the literature as we try our best to practice in an evidence-based manner. In the clinic, Justin and Tina have previously discussed a whole food plant-based way of eating. Let's listen in as they reflect back on this. So when we talked about the plant-based stuff, did that sound weird to you? Did it sound like something you could do? Well, I watched the movie first, Forks Over Knives. <laughs> the man was talking about chickens, and then I saw the other guy the, saying that milk had pus in it. And, you know, just nasty stuff. And it just, like, it makes you think, like, ugh, I don't want to eat that. Like, you're grossed. Like, nasty for eating it. But did they talk about the different health benefits or yeah. health harms, yeah. different stuff? Mm-hmm. What, what do they talk about? Um, Like lowering your cholesterol, lowering um, like insulin, um, you know, resistance and things like that. So everything that they said would happen, happened. It's just that I messed up and I never went back. You've mentioned this now and I heard Tina mention it. And this is the Forks Over Knives documentary, which brings up and really popularized, I think, for a lot of uh, Americans, what a whole food plant-based diet is. And I know you touched on this briefly, but just thinking about why everyone should care about nutrition now that you've already convinced fellow primary care physicians, why should our patients care about nutrition? Um, And I think to get to the core of that, we really have to discuss in a little more detail um, something that happens to be of extreme interest to you, which is the whole food plant-based diet. So if you would mind, uh, if you wouldn't mind, please educate us on, you know, what is um, the most convincing argument, would you say, for a whole food plant-based diet? I would not mind at all. 
A whole food plant-based diet, and for those of you who don't know what that is, I will break it down quickly for you and then go into all the benefits of it. So two components. One is whole food and one is plant-based. The plant-based part means getting most of, if not all of your calories from plant-based sources. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, avocados, some minimally processed soy like tofu and not getting your food from animal-based sources, meat, chicken, other poultry, lamb, pork, eggs, dairy, fish, shellfish, etc. Not saying all of those are equal, but generally speaking, when we look at the evidence, plant-based foods tend to be health-promoting, animal-based foods tend to be health-harming, leaving all ethics and environmental impact aside. So that's the plant-based part. The whole food part, as I like to joke, does not mean you have to do your grocery shopping at Whole Foods. It means you're eating foods in their whole form, minimally processed. What does that mean? We are not breaking down the food too much and not adding things to the food that make it unhealthy. Take an apple, for instance, with skin on it. It has a ton of fiber, a ton of nutrients in it, a ton of water, which does tend to not only hydrate us, but keep us full. And that fiber is really such an important part. The nutrients follow the fiber. We break that down into applesauce, especially flavored applesauce with added sugar. Now we've removed the fiber. We've removed a lot of the nutrients. We've removed a lot of the water, the bulk that keeps us full. And we've added preservatives. We've added sugar. Sometimes they sneak some oil and whatnot in there. And now we break that down further into apple pie. And now, you know, the apple is a supporting cast member in the butter, sugar, all of these other very unhealthy things, high in preservatives, high in calories, very little fiber. So we've taken that, that gorgeous apple and completely just ruined it from a nutritional standpoint by putting it into an apple pie. So what does that mean? It means the white rice, the white flour products where they've been stripped of so many nutrients from their whole grain counterpart, the junk food, the fast food, the things with the added salt, oil, sugar, preservatives, really don't belong in the diet. And that's what distinguishes this from vegan, which I don't like using that word. Now, a lot of you may be wondering what the difference between a whole food plant-based diet and a vegan diet is. Justin's about to break that down very nicely, but first, let's hear why he doesn't like using the word vegan in the first place. One, because it brings up a lot of ethical things that may or may not be relevant to someone. And two, for a vegan diet, you can have an impossible burger with vegan cheese, with a side of vegan mac and cheese, with a whole sleeve of Oreos and a liter of Pepsi, and that's a totally vegan meal. And I would never, ever tell anyone that that is a healthy thing that they should eat. Whereas the whole food part of the plant-based would eliminate all of those foods and make sure you're really getting your food sources that are full of fiber, full of nutrients, have minimal additives and other unhealthy things. So that's from a definitional standpoint. So what? Who cares? What does it do? Prevents, treats, and can even reverse most of the chronic medical conditions that kill most people. Reverse. Reverse. Tell me more. So... When we're talking about diseases, most of the time in primary care, we're talking about managing them. When you have diabetes, it's a chronic progressive condition that we can only hope to slow the progression as much as we can to minimize downstream complications. 
disease reversal is saying we can look at the root cause of this disease, in the case of diabetes, insulin resistance, and we can fix that with nutrition and other lifestyle changes so you can start to come off of your medications and have normal or near-normal blood work and maintain that where you're in remission from your diabetes or your hypertension or your obesity or your coronary artery disease. And there's really good evidence that we can reverse or at least partially reverse so many of these chronic conditions that we deal with day in and day out in the primary care setting. And I, I never learned that. I never learned in medical school that coronary artery disease, you can actually improve the diameter stenosis of coronary arteries without stenting, that you can reverse insulin resistance and get someone off of their insulin and off of their metformin, that you can reverse someone's obesity and get them to a level where they're at a more normal BMI and have more normal physiology. It's really incredible. And you're making people better. They're not just having better numbers and feeling terrible. They're feeling better. Their lab work is better. They're able to go and do all of the things that they like doing. And all of the side effects are good ones. They're not dealing with the, well, you might have dry mouth. It's like, well, side effects might include weight loss, improved strength of erections, ability to run around and play with your kids, and fix your depression. We have such powerful and effective tools, like you've said before, right in our own pantry that can be and are first line for these diseases, but we're just not telling patients about them. Why is that? Well, I definitely don't think that we are knowingly withholding that information. I have a lot more faith in our profession than that. I think a lot of us don't know that or don't believe it is first. Nutrition education in medical school and residency is abysmal. We probably can all remember that one nutrition lecture we had with the modules from the 1980s that we don't remember and we just clicked through to get credit. And then we learned about the Krebs cycle and we learned about niacin deficiency and quashiorcor and marasmus and all of these things for board questions. And we never learned, should I eat carbohydrates? You keep telling me that nutrition and diet is the first-line therapy for diabetes. What kind of diet? What should we be telling our patients to eat to lose weight? We can answer the board question that someone comes in with an A1C of 6.0. What's the first-line therapy? Lifestyle modifications. But what are those? What is there actually evidence behind? And a lot of times we tell patients what we think is right from what we read on the internet. And if we were going to manage AFib that way, we'd lose our license. But we do it with nutrition and exercise and stress management all the time. So being educated on what is optimal and the evidence behind it enough where we can explain it in a very simple way understanding how to assess someone's motivations and how to get them to that point, and then combining our knowledge with motivational interviewing to actually help the person in front of us make a change that's realistic that will help them on their way to their goals. So this is going to seem like a bit of a departure, but stay with me. So... I'm not a professional op-ed writer, but I've heard some folks who are really good at writing op-eds. 
And in the op-ed, there's this very standard structure wherein you lay out your argument, you provide all this backup um, data and evidence to support your claims. And then there's this paragraph towards the end called the to be sure, which is where basically you try to envision what your critics are going to say and you address those criticisms. That is something that I think comes to bear so strongly here with this discussion, because a lot of primary care physicians out there are going to say, well, that's all fine and dandy, and we can all learn about how we should eat best. But this diet and getting to the point where we're eating good nutrition that's nourishing and not harming our bodies is not feasible. And I think there's a lot to be said about that, and I know you have a lot to say about that. So I have a few to-be-sures, if you'll indulge me. So one is this sense of food being more than just food. So Tina talked a lot about this. She had um, a childhood that extended into adulthood wherein she had this really complex relationship with food, including these battles with self-control and childhood experiences related to the role of uh, food as a source of power and control. I'm so sick of myself. I can't lose any weight. I can't do anything. So what I did was I cut off all my hair because I could control that. I can't control what I eat. So it was just like, I'm going to cut all my hair off. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to start dieting. So now I have no excuse because I did this to myself. Got it. And so, oh, that's that's why you have that nice uh, hat on now. <laughs> yeah. And it's like I was cutting the fat out, but it was my hair. So visually, it was my hair, but it... it, it it's like I'm going to get in shape. I have no excuses now. I can't cut the fat. I could cut my hair. And that's going to make me want to exercise. So what is that like your relationship with control? I know we talked about that a little before of not feeling like growing up you had a lot of control. How has that played into your life now? Um, I do what I want. I eat what I want. I say what I want. I do what I want. And it all comes back to I eat what I want. It's kind of like a, a statement. Of yes. Like, I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. No one can tell me what to do. I'm in right. charge. And then at the same time, not feeling as in control and mm -hmm. feeling like you can't help it anymore. Right. Growing up, we had my stepfather in the house. My mother would make his food, which was, you know, better choices of food, I guess. And we couldn't ask for his food and we would have to eat the the lesser grade food. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm older, I can eat what I want to eat. I don't have anybody telling me, you can't have this, you can't have that, because that's for him. Now it's for me. This is something that is not unique to Tina. This is something that's a common issue for a lot of folks. So thinking about this to be sure, is it really possible to get patients to meaningfully change their eating habits when these are the kind of things that you're up against? Excellent question. And I've said this many times before, when we get to the core of it, any discussion about nutrition has to have a discussion about your motivations for eating and the psychological underpinnings that inform those motivations for eating. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to necessarily be the people to get that knowledge and to fix it, but we have to be aware of it because most people eat for reasons other than hunger. They eat because they're sad. They eat because they're stressed. They eat because they're happy. They eat because they had fractured relationships with their family. A lot of psychodynamic things go into our eating decisions, and we eat to feel whole in some kind of way. And it's really important to keep those in mind and use our 
other health professional colleagues to help people unpack those reasons and to get at the core of why they're doing those things and develop insight into them so they don't fall into the same traps. So I think it's a really important barrier that we need to focus on, but not an insurmountable one, and one that we need to help build up the discrepancy to help patients realize that there is an emotional relationship with the way they're eating, so we can then help them solve that and resolve that to whatever degree we can. What is your thoughts on the role of judgment versus self-compassion in terms of, of eating healthy? Self-compassion at this point. It's just like, I'm just out of control. It's just like, it's just, the only word I can come up with is nasty. <laughs> like, <laughs> the food did it to me. I did it to myself, but eating the food did it to me. And it's just like, um, I need... Not, it's not even so much about food. I need to start working out, and then I eat something that makes me feel sluggish and tired so I don't have the energy. Then it's just a circle, a cycle. I went to the dentist the other day, and I asked her, I said, and seriously, this is what I asked her, about getting my teeth, um, my jaw, you know, wired shut. And she said that they wouldn't do it here, but she's heard of people going over to different countries to get it done. So that's something I was looking into. And then I would just eat, like, purified foods, like a like baby food or something like that to lose the weight. Trying to lose weight is so depressing. You think of, if you're really honest, I've thought about going out and buying street drugs. I've thought about um, just all kind of stuff. Like, you see these girls, they're on drugs. They, no matter what they're doing to get it, they always look good. They never have fat on them. You know, and could you buy street drugs and just lose the weight and stop? No. But a little part of you wants to believe that you can because these are my honest feelings. Like, I'm like, damn, them girls out there, and they look good. Mm -hmm. They really do until they get to a certain point, and then they don't look good anymore. Right. You never see a fat one out there. Yeah, so it's just like you choose what this addiction has got me looking crazy, and their addiction has them looking good. I, I hear you, and, and mm -hmm. I think this is really important to share for both other people out there who also feel a lot of desperation, and yeah, that they I do absolutely anything. And a lot of doctors to realize just what people are willing mm -hmm. to go through to, to do that, and that we really need to understand nutrition mm -hmm. and how to talk to people and how to motivate okay. people, because... You know, people could end up in some pretty serious situations mm -hmm. trying to do this on their own. I think maybe the best reaction I have to all of that is just one word, and that is, wow. To hear Tina talk about her journey with food and trying to lose weight and explaining how she's felt, quote, out of control, nasty, and depressed, how she's contemplated buying street drugs to look thin, and how she even asked her dentist about getting her mouth wired shut in order to control her eating so that she can lose weight. And Justin did a really good job of naming the emotion. All of this just screams desperation. But as you can probably tell, and this is perhaps most important of all, Tina still hasn't lost hope. Her resilience reminds us all just how important it is for us to engage with our patients about nutrition which is why I'm so excited for our next episode, where we'll be exploring some evidence-based ways of doing this, including, of course, one of our favorite techniques in the clinic, motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm.
Here are some key takeaways that I took from today's episode and hope you will too. Number one, there are various diets that our patients often try for various reasons, and they each, of course, have their own pros and cons. The most important thing about diet selection is not thinking about it as a diet, but rather selecting a sustainable way of eating long-term that will promote health and well-being. Number two, the whole food plant-based diet and other evidence-based diets recommend that we, quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, as so well summarized by one of my favorite food journalists, Michael Pollan. Remember, this is different than some vegan diets, which can still include a lot of those processed foods that are so detrimental to our health. And number three, eating carries a lot of emotional weight. I know it does for me and it does for so many of our patients as well. So it's really important for us to be cognizant of this as we're working with them as they try to adopt healthier eating habits. Be sure to tune in next time wherever you listen to your podcasts to catch part three in our four-part nutrition series, where we'll introduce some of the general principles of motivational interviewing and get equipped to engage our patients on nutrition and provide them the support they need. Well, everyone, it's that time again. That concludes our episode for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was made possible by contributions from our patient Tina and Dr. Justin Charles, who served as our patient interviewer, as our expert, and who also provided peer review for this project. Special thanks, as always, to our producers Madison Swallow, August Aloko, Helen Tsai, and Dr. Joshua Onyango, as well as our faculty advisor, Dr. Katie Gielison. Be sure to follow us at PC Pearls on Instagram, where you can expect to get sneak peeks, additional learning content, and the most up-to-date details on show release times. And don't forget, you can head to our link tree at linktree.com backslash PC Pearls and click on send us a voice message to send us your questions, reflections, and personal experiences. We'd love to hear from you. And if you could, please leave us a rating and a review. Don't forget to subscribe to Primary Care Pearls wherever you get your podcasts so that you can stay up to date on new episode releases. Thanks again for joining us today. Farewell from all of us at the Primary Care Pearls podcast. We'll catch you in the next one.